Let's go into Dr. Ferris's case. This is a 60-year-old woman who was seen by a surgeon and another oncologist before she came to me. And so her examination biopsies were already completed. But clinically, she had a picture of inflammatory breast cancer and had a palpable right axillary lymph node, which was biopsied. The breast lesion was also biopsied, and it was invasive ductal carcinoma, grade 3. Prognostic markers were estrogen and progesterone receptor negative. HER2 was overexpressed. She had a breast MRI, which demonstrated a 6.5-centimeter mass in the right breast. She received neoadjuvant chemotherapy with adramycin and cytoxan. Clinically, she had a great response. I could not feel the mass initially, but the skin changes had all resolved. And after four cycles of chemotherapy, she had a restaging PET CT, which was negative. At that point, she went for a right mastectomy with axillary lymph node dissection. And the pathology demonstrated a three-centimeter, widely scattered areas of small nests and individual invasive ductal carcinoma cells, grade 3, clear surgical margins, extensive ductal carcinoma in situ, including comedosolid and cribriform DCIS. Fifteen lymph nodes were negative for metastatic disease. Interestingly, her prognostic markers on the pathology were estrogen receptor positive, which is different from the initial pathology, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 amplified. She completed adjuvant paclitaxel and trastuzumab and continued trastuzumab for one year, and she's continuing also with letrozole. She also received adjuvant radiotherapy and currently is without evidence of disease. Where is she right now? She's about six months following the completion of her trastuzumab. Can I ask you what you did in terms of cardiac monitoring on her? We did echocardiograms throughout, initially the MUGA scan to begin with, and then following surgery before we started the trastuzumab, and then every three months. Can you talk a little bit more about this woman herself, what her sort of life situation is? She was a very health-conscious woman, very interested in alternative and herbal medications. But actually, she did not have a problem with taking chemotherapy, which I was surprised at. But very fit, very health-conscious. No other medical problems except osteopenia. She's working? No. What's her family constellation? She's an older woman, meaning that her children are grown and out of the house. Was it your impression, looking back, that she had delayed seeking care? I mean, she had a huge mass, or it just kind of came up quickly? From my understanding, it was rather subtle, and it was a rash that had come and gone, and she had had a previous rash that had cleared. Did you actually see her when she had the inflammatory, or she's already better She'd already been biopsied, so I couldn't tell, and that was the point. Well, there are a lot of things to talk about in this case, and let's just pick up, first of all, Ruth, on this issue of the fact that she had kind of a change in markers, and how often we see that, and what that might be from. Any thoughts? Oh, I guess the two possibilities are that she's got heterogeneous cancer where some of the cells are ER positive and some of them are ER negative, or there's with some change in the estrogen receptor throughout the chemotherapy, which seems a little bit unlikely, but I guess potentially is possible. I think the other question this brings up is I think that we don't know that much information about primary versus metastatic lesions in terms of whether the receptor status is always the same or not. The most likely thing I think in this patient is that it was a mixed cancer or a heterogeneous cancer and I think it's very appropriate certainly to give her a letrozole and treat her based on the primary but I think this is something that we really probably should try and do a better job of trying to 
define, particularly with regard to primary lesions and subsequent metastatic lesions, there certainly is some data showing a discordance between receptors, between the primary and metastatic lesions, which I think hasn't been defined that well. So I think one of the things I think it's important is that when patients have a metastatic recurrence that we do try and biopsy them where possible to see if we can get a better idea of how these the receptors kind of pan out over the disease course. Chuck, we just had a closed roundtable, day-long discussion on tissue biomarkers in breast cancer, just that topic. And one of the participants was Craig Allred, and of course he's been talking for years about the issue of quality control and ER. Antonio Wolf was there, who of course was the head of the task force, looking at HER2, and you were involved in the NCCN HER2. Where are we right now in terms of quality control of these two critical markers? I think we're starting to do better. I think we're seeing the American College of Pathologists doing what they should have done a long time ago and starting to monitor with regards to hair to new And the pathologists are adhering to the guidelines if they're doing testing in their own shop. So I think we are starting to see that with regards to hair too. I think that it's now got to be readdressed with regards to estrogen receptor and is being readdressed with regards to estrogen receptor. And a long time ago, probably five years ago, Craig Allred and I took a look at some of our patients, and I started sending off our ER-negative, PR-negative patients to Allred and came back with about 30% of them actually being positive by Allred score. So another explanation for this discordance is actually a testing issue. It could very well be biologic And we've seen that in the past year. We see a profusion of papers on rebiopsying and finding discordant values between the previous and the current presentation. But I still think that some of that difference could be methodologic. Are you still finding false negative? I mean, false positive is not good either. They get hormone therapy, it's not going to help them. But false negative, really scary that they're not going to get the benefit of hormones. Are you still seeing that in your practice? I don't really know. We have sent a few off recently, and most of the time I've been finding that they've been concordant, central lab versus whatever lab has been doing it. So I think that maybe it is getting a bit better with regards to estrogen receptor, but I can't quantitate it. With HER2, my final arbiter is Mike Press, and I send everything out to Mike. But That being the case, if I had a patient who was ER positive, node negative, have an oncotype, and they're 1.8 to 2.2 fish, and I wasn't using Mike Press, you might want to think about using oncotype as a break the tie in terms of interpretation. We were reviewing that, the data, looking at these markers, HER2, particularly there's some data in the literature right now, and RT-PCR, Ruth, it looks pretty encouraging in terms of maybe it's going to be more helpful than IHC. I think it is important data, and I think what's important about the RT-PCR is the quantification that you get from it. So I think even though when we look, you know, you get the ERPR and HER2 new now, and you still kind of base what you do in the recurrence score, I think, for example, the ER, you know, the data suggests that if you've got very high levels of ER in the RT-PCR, tamoxifen has a fantastic, like, 70% reduction in relapse rate. And I think for PR also, I think it's important, because I do think that PR is important, because it basically is a marker of an intact estrogen receptor axis. And I think, like I said before, for defining your luminal types, maybe it would be helpful. The her 2 new, I had used it a little bit before, for, as Chuck was saying, those kind of equivocal cases. And I do find it actually has been very helpful in those cases. And now, of course... The 
they are reporting it out. So I think we probably there's a lot more we can do with the RT-PCR than what we're doing right now. But I think it may well be something that we are going to see more prominent going forward. So Ruth, help me straighten something out here. I asked about this issue of cardiac monitoring on a patient on adjuvant trastuzumab. Do you agree with what was said in terms of every three months while the patient's on trastuzumab? Do you do that? That's generally what I do. Now, I have to say some of the guidelines suggest doing an ejection fraction measurement at two years. I don't typically do that, but I will certainly do for three months while they're getting the chemotherapy and then when they're on the trastuzumab as well. And that is what the NCCN states. And I think the other thing that's been out there is, quote, follow what the trials did. That's what the trials did. So help me understand our patterns of care data. September 2008, we surveyed randomly 100 docs, practicing docs in the United States. And we said, when you assess cardiac function in patients getting trastuzumab 4, and only 39% of the docs said they did it at 6 months, 24% 9 months, 22% 2 months. So what does this mean? We got a denial on Herceptin from an insurance company. I don't remember which insurance company because we didn't monitor the mugger scan or the ejection fraction every three months. You got a denial to pay for the Herceptin? Yes. Wow. Actually, we've had the same issue. In patients who are lymph node negative, we've had three denials of Herceptin unless they have a documented mugger or echo. It happened a few times this past month. So we do it every three months routinely. Chuck, if this is really happening, is it of concern? I think it is a concern. I think that you're going to see some cardiac toxicity if you're using anthracyclines and Herceptin. I think that if you're using non-anthracycline regimens, I think it's, it's really probably going to end up being less of a problem. That was one of the things I thought about that maybe, I'm not sure if we could maybe cross-tab this, maybe if the people who are dropping off are the ones using TCH. It's certainly possible because I'm significantly less concerned about cardiac toxicity with TCH than I would be with sequential anthracycline based. Concerned therapy. or not to follow that algorithm in terms of echo or MUGA? Well, I follow the algorithm out to a year. Yeah, out to a year. And if you look at how the other groups did it, most of them did either at two years or at 18 months. And so in general, I would do another at two years. I might drop it out because I use a lot of TCH. I mean, it's the one easiest decision in the adjuvant setting outside of the context of clinical trials for me is to use TCH in the new positive patients, and the cardiac toxicity risk is really quite low. I think we're getting too comfortable because a patient who's curable, to leave her with severe congestive heart failure not knowing it would be a mistake. The other question I had on the case was the method of giving chemotherapy, the sandwich method, right. which would be the AC, then surgery, and then pick up the taxane. So, Ruth, that was the other question, obviously, here, which is how do you approach the patient with locally advanced HER2-positive disease, and what chemo do you select? Where does the trastuzumab come in? Yeah, I mean, obviously, with regards to sandwiching technique, we're all thinking back to the B27 study, basically, showing that it didn't matter whether you sandwiched or didn't sandwich. In the HER2 setting, I have to say, I do tend to try and get them on transtuzumab as soon as possible, given the really high pathologic complete responses that have been seen with transtuzumab-based chemotherapy. I think AC followed by a taxane plus transtuzumab is completely reasonable. I probably would have given it all before surgery, but I don't think it's necessarily wrong to give it this way. I think there's a lot of trials out there. We have a non-anthracytine-containing transtuzumab pre-op trial that we're doing where they get nab paclitaxel followed by vinarelbine with transtuzumab, and we've had very, very high pathologic complete response on that so far. When does the transtuzumab start with the, the nab? Trans- with, no, with the nab paclitaxel. It's given the whole way through, so there's no anthracytine, so they get it the whole way 
way through. So how many cycles of NAB and how it's many cycles? It's four cycles of NAB given kind of in a dose-dense format, 260 milligrams per meter squared, and then vinorelbine for 12 weeks afterwards with trastuzumab the whole way along. And then after that, the plan is just for trastuzumab, although there are patients that I've sent Topo2 on in this study just because they're not getting an anthracycline. What was the thinking there in doing this sequence? I think the idea of combining NAB paclitaxel with trastuzumab certainly isn't new. I mean, we've certainly done that. And the reason for choosing the venerelbine was the very high response rates that were seen in the metastatic setting with that combination. How many patients have gone on the study so far? We have about 10 on the study so far. Now, one of the problems is they do run into problems with neuropathy, no question. Some patients have had to come off, so it's very early on. But I think it just speaks to the fact that these transtuzumab-based regimens do appear to be very active in the preoperative setting. Is this a translational study also? You're oh, looking of course. At tissue? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Anything in particular, as I know that's a real interest of yours, that you'd be curious about seeing in these patients? Well, I think one of the questions, of course, is you're trying to find patients that don't get a good response to try and work out molecularly why that is. We actually have one of scientists that actually was N.V. Anderson before that's very interested in this. But so far, every patient that's gone to surgery has had a pathologic complete response. So we haven't actually been able to address that issue. Chuck, what do we know about anti-tumor effects of NAB versus paclitaxel? We have you know, some data on that. It's not perfect. What are some of the key data sets and how do you put it together? Well, the major study that got the drug approved was a head-to-head comparison on the three-week schedule, but, I mean, I haven't used every three-week paclitaxel since 1994. I always thought it was a ho-hum drug, even when it was an era of navelbine. If the companies could ever get their act together, I thought that they should just go head-to-head against every three-week paclitaxel, but they didn't. I tend to use nabpaclitaxel in preference to paclitaxel in virtually every situation in metastatic disease, and it's going to be much more difficult in the adjuvant setting because you have no data. The very interesting trial against docetaxel that Bill Gratishar published, I think, was very interesting where weekly nabpaclitaxel looks superior to the every three-week nab as well as looking superior to docetaxel. There's an intergroup study that's, I don't know if it's active yet, but it's going to happen. Metastatic breast cancer, everybody gets BEV, and then the randomization is between NAB, paclitaxel, and X. And the NAB and the paclitaxel is going to be weekly. So I don't think it's out yet, but that is, I think, a study that's going to be done. Is that metastatic or is that neoadjuvant? No, it's metastatic. There may be a... Just CTSU just sent out yesterday broadcast. I think it just got activated. Is that right? Yeah. That's metastatic disease, though, right? Right. I think it is. How do you approach the choice of taxane in metastatic disease? For me, I think it kind of comes down to the bevacizumab issue. When I'm using bevacizumab, I tend to use paclitaxel because I'm used to using it. I've certainly used it with NAB paclitaxel. I think there's data, certainly safety data doing that. But my first line, if I'm going to use a taxane, would probably still be paclitaxel plus bevacizumab. I have used some Zaloda plus bevacizumab as well, particularly for patients who've had a taxane fairly recently in the adjuvant setting. One final kind of patterns of care observation. We're always looking for these things where you see gaps. And another one that we've seen consistently now, and we just saw it again in this most recent study, Ruth, that you might find interesting, is somewhere around 25 or 30% of medical oncologists say they use corticosteroids with NAB. Essentially, no breast cancer clinical investigator that we survey says that. Are you surprised? 
Well, I'm a little surprised because I think certainly in the pivotal trial that led to the registration, they didn't get steroids and there appeared to be very, very low rate of allergic reactions. So I'm not sure why you would do that, I have to say. I mean, I've had no allergic reactions from Mampaclitaxel. I don't use goose with steroids. Does it surprise you, Chuck? When we asked people why, we got all kinds of reasons, formulary reasons, or they thought it was necessary for treatment. Any justification for doing that? Well, the only justification is just habit that you just get in the habit of knowing that you're going to have less nausea by adding a corticosteroid. But on the other hand, you're not going to have much nausea with nabpaclitaxel. So there is absolutely no justification, as far as I'm concerned, for using steroids with nab. But just to get back to the issue in question, I think that obviously we all are aware of the MD Anderson data with paclitaxel followed by FEC with trastuzumab that had a very high pathologic complete response rate of, I think, 65% initially and then 55% when they added in some other patients. And I think we all believe those patients are going to do well based on the other data that we have from prior trials. So I think that this is a very ripe area for research in terms of novel regimens in the preoperative setting to get correlative studies. We've been doing another thing in this patterns of care that's kind of interesting is we not only ask people what they prefer to do, but what they're not comfortable with. We throw a bunch of options and say, suppose the patient came for a second opinion, the first opinion was X. Are you okay with it? And so I would throw back to you, if a patient came to you for a second opinion and the first doc had recommended the Buzzdar regimen off study, would you say, okay, I'm okay with that? Or, you know, I don't think you should do that. I'd probably say I'm okay with that, but I mean, I think you have to be very careful that the patient's aware that there could be potential cardiac risk with it. I know they didn't see much in this study, but I think we all have to be very careful of that. And I think that study brings up one of the questions of whether, obviously, the trastuzumab was still circulating when they got the anthracycline. And we know that anthracycline and trastuzumab are a pretty active combination from the metastatic setting. And the question I think that that study always brings up is, is that directly translatable to other regimens that don't perhaps contain an anthracycline? So I would be okay with it, but as long as the patient was fully aware that there may be a potential cardiac risk. So Chuck, how do you approach a patient with a locally advanced, large, 6-centimeter, HER2-positive tumor, and also inflammatory breast cancer that's HER2-positive? I would treat the patient with TCH. This lady I probably would have treated with AC followed by Taxotere and Herceptin. That's how I would have approached this lady. I would have given everything up front to try to achieve a pathologic complete response. You would have given her AC followed by Taxotere or TCH? Well, if one has committed to AC, I would have given her AC followed by docetaxel plus Herceptin. But if she were to come to me up front, I would probably just treat her with TCH neoadjuvant. I have to ask you about, because you were telling me as we were walking in today about this letter you're sending into the JCO about these cases that you've had with lobular. Can you just comment on that? I thought it was fascinating. Well, it was just a serendipitous observation. Basically, we had a patient who had a pleomorphic lobular carcinoma, and she's 11 years disease-free with metastatic breast cancer. That was her two positive? She's her two positive. And what kind of treatment has she gotten for the 11 years? She got Zolota plus Herceptin up front, and she's a very aggressive young woman and elected to take Zolota for 16 months, which I wouldn't have done. <laughs> and then she's been on Herceptin now for the past 11 years wow. disease-free. Where does she have the meds? Bone. And so... I said, well, that's this is a funny observation, pleomorphic lobular carcinoma and very long response. So I took a look at my nine-year responder, and she's a pleomorphic lobular. And then I took a look at a lady who's an eight-year disease-free after very, very bad inflammatory carcinoma. 
She was pleomorphic lobular. And then I had another four-year patient. And then just three weeks ago, I was lecturing at the Genentech 10th anniversary launch of Herceptin. And they brought in a patient from California who was 11 years. What was she? The pleomorphic lobular. So if you just think about it, you got 20 to 25% of patients are here to new positive. 10% of patients are lobular carcinomas across the board. And pleomorphic lobulars are a very small percentage of lobulars. What's this entity? Is there a clinical? It's just pathologic. When you look at lobular carcinomas, it's mostly defined by grade. And if you have your classical lobular carcinoma, these are usually well differentiated. So it's usually your grade two, grade three lobulars. You should be thinking about pleomorphic. So we entitled it the letter to the editor. It should be out soon. A coincidence or a hint? Well, I think it's probably a hint. I think that there is this very, very small subset of women with pleomorphic lobular carcinoma who probably have some type of genotype that is going to be predictive of extreme Herceptin sensitivity. I don't think it's a coincidence. Get a statistician to figure out the percentages, but this is an incredible coincidence. So Ruth, I guess we could try to get the tumor blocks on these four or five laters. If we did, what would you want to look at? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think you'd certainly want to look at the downstream acts of AKT and MAP kinase. Probably also maybe look at other upstream growth factor receptors like IGF that have been shown to play a role in Herceptin resistance. I think those for sure. Also, of course, there's that data from CMIC that was presented before. So I think there's many things that you would want to look at on these cancers. I think we're learning a bit about Herceptin resistance, but maybe we don't really understand Herceptin sensitivity very well. So it could be something completely different. I'm going to pick your brains about a couple things related to her, too, since we brought up this case that are kind of on my mind a little bit. First, Chuck, I see that your name's on an abstract for San Antonio. This is going to come out after San Antonio for a poster looking at TDM1. You're involved with that? Yes. Can you talk about that? Because I thought it was pretty interesting. Well, TDM1 is probably one of the more exciting compounds out there for hair to new positive disease. And also keep an eye out for Halberstein's neratinib abstract. What are those two substances or agents? Okay, well, TDM1 is basically a Trojan horse. It's Herceptin linked to a metansinoid-like chemotherapy drug. And so the Herceptin will bring the drug to the tumor and release the chemotherapy. So it's that type of compound. In phase one, there was a 30% response rate. And in phase two, there was a 30% response rate. These are people progressing on other anti-RTs? Oh, these are far advanced patients. Multiply Herceptin-resistant patients. Any patients you had in your practice where you were kind of impressed with what happened? Yes. We had an extraordinary response and a very aggressive presentation in a young woman, and it drove me absolutely berserk when they wouldn't let me continue her because she developed a one millimeter brain mat. I mean, I would have just gamma knifed it and continued her on study. So she had previously received what kind of anti-HER2 therapy? She was not that heavily pretreated. But she'd had trastuzumab? She had had trastuzumab plus paclitaxel, or it was a Braxane and she had progressive disease, and that was all, and we were able to put her on the TDM trial. But we put six patients on the trial, and I think we've had three of them respond. This woman had a PR? Oh, it was a beautiful PR. She had very aggressive 
disease. What about side effects and toxicity? We had one man on the study who developed a severe, it was grade four liver toxicity, but that's very, very rare. I mean, they hadn't seen it in anybody else. Any chemo kind of toxicity, neutropenia? or Yes, you get thrombocytopenia. Thrombocytopenia does occur. It tends to be transient and reversible at day 14. But this is a very hot compound. Genentech has a registrational strategy. They have a greater than third line repeat phase two. They have a second line trial of TDM alone versus capecitabine plus Ticurb. And they have a first line trial of TDM versus, I think it's docetaxel plus Herceptin. So you give it as a single therapy, right? You give it as a single agent. Interesting. And the neratinib, which is a very interesting compound, it's a pan HER2. So it's active against HER1, HER2, and HER4. It's a TKI? It's a TKI, so there's no tyrosine kinase for HER3. And neratinib had a 33% response rate in phase one as a single agent in heavily pretreated patients. And so far, a 26% response rate in that same population of patients, and I think a 50% response rate in Herceptin-naive patients. Side effects? TKI kind of side effects? Diarrhea. Interesting. I have no experience with this drug. I was just reading up on it, trying to decide about getting involved in their clinical trials development program. So much going on in HER2 disease right now. Ruth, any thoughts? We actually have been taking part in a study, again, for very heavily Herceptin pretreated patients, which is essentially, it's a phase one going into phase two, which is paclitaxel with Herceptin and the Novartis mTOR inhibitor, the RAD001. And although it's only a phase one study, I mean, the activity has been very marked. These were like kind of the patients that Joyce O'Shaughnessy had in her lapatinib Herceptin study. And the response rate that we've seen is about 45% in this group of patients, but the disease control rate is about 85%. So it's very active regimen. And unfortunately, it requires chemotherapy, at least this study does. But it is going into phase two right now. So I think that's pretty exciting. And I think, and I heard Chuck mentioning this earlier, this is becoming a relatively small group of patients and we have a lot of really exciting agents so I think it's going to be hard to recruit these trials we actually have been fairly fortunate in being able to recruit the trial we have with the mTOR inhibitor but I think this is going to become a problem I mean it's very exciting but are there enough patients to actually put on the trials is the question there is one more thing I want to pick your brain about. Do you want to talk about von Mankiewicz's paper from ASCO that a lot of people didn't notice, but you yeah, know, it was really yeah. amazing. Yeah, so basically there is one study finally that's kind of addressed this issue and it was in patients who had prior transtuzumab and they were randomized between capcitabine alone or capcitabine plus transtuzumab. And basically what they found was that the patients that continued on the transtuzumab had a significant improvement in time to progression compared to the patients that were on the capcitabine. So I think that this is kind of the first study we have now. It was closed early because when lapatinib became available in Europe, they had some difficulty accruing it. But still, although the numbers were small, the results were statistically significant. So I think that that is at last data showing that there is some sense in continuing transtuzumab through progression. I was kind of thinking, well, suppose you had done a study, or what about the issue of continuation of trastuzumab versus lapatinib? First, you could maybe project what the side effects and toxicity profile would be of those two choices, but then what would you project about efficacy? Obviously, it's indirect comparison. Ruth, how do you think that would play out? 
That is a choice you have. A patient who's progressing on first-line trastuzumab chemo, switching the chemo, keeping the trastuzumab going, or bringing in lapatinib. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think it depends. I would base my decision based on how the patient did with the trastuzumab in the first-line setting. So if they had a great response, the patients that you have on chemo plus trastuzumab, then you drop the chemo, and these patients are doing fine, and then they finally progress. I think that's a patient I would probably just add in a different chemotherapy in versus a patient that perhaps doesn't get as good a response from the first-line treatment. You never get them on single-agent trastuzumab, for example. I mean, that would be a patient I'd be certainly more eager to use lapatinib on. I think both are a completely reasonable option. I just don't think we know the right answer at this time point. The toxicity is probably a little bit more with lapatinib. I think we'd all probably accept that. But I think that that's how I would base my decisions, basically. Chuck, what are you seeing in terms of the quality of life and side effects with lapatinib? And I'd be curious about the entire group here in terms of what you're seeing, what kinds of problems you're running into, how many patients just cruise through it, and how many have significant problems. I think I've treated probably about 20 patients with lapatinib and I would say about four of them don't ever want to look at the drug again because of diarrhea, even with preemptive use of Imodium. I've had maybe another four that have sailed through it, and then I've had my longest-term patient is a patient who has been on it now for well over a year with capecitabine and Herceptin, by the way, and she has had a persistent rash for the entire time that she's been on the drug. I mean... Uh, whole body rash. So it's been a mixed bag in terms of tolerability with lapatinib. Just to finish out on this, Chuck, you mentioned the fact that that one patient was on both trastuzumab and lapatinib, and we did see some interesting data on that from ASCO and Joyce O'Shaughnessy from U.S. Oncology presenting that. And Karen, I don't know, did you have any patients on that study with the lapatinib and trastuzumab? I did not. What were your thoughts? Can you kind of review what she presented there, Chuck, and what your take was on it? Well, we participated in that trial, and this was a trial for patients who were heavily pretreated, and the study was lapatinib alone versus lapatinib plus trastuzumab, and there was a statistically significant benefit for the combination over single-agent lapatinib, I believe. As I recall, the response rate for the single-agent lapatinib was 6.9%, and I think that the progression-free survival was about 15 or 18 weeks, something like that. You have these patients with heritonu-positive disease, and now you have between Avastin, Herceptin, and Lapatinib, you have a number of targeted agents that you can play with in patients who have progressed on multiple lines of therapy. And I've gone to trastuzumab plus bevacizumab. I've gone to trastuzumab plus lapatinib in patients who have been exposed to either of those agents in the past with some successes. Trastuzumab and bevacizumab, did you say? Yeah. Well, we participated with Mark Pegram in his trial of yeah. trastuzumab plus bevacizumab. Yeah, yeah the yeah. thing that's being studied in the Beth study. Yeah. Well, that Are was you based... doing that off-study metastatic disease? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because... I mean, the response rate in that trial, we put a few patients onto Mark's trial, but the response rate in that trial was about 50% with a clinical benefit rate of about 80%. So this is a very active regimen, and that's what has moved it into the Beth trial in the adjuvant setting. It's interesting. I was editing the interview I just did with Rakesh Jain, who's done a lot of the laboratory work, and the one thing that he picked out that he was really interested in seeing clinically is exactly what you were talking about, which is Bev plus 
trastuzumab. With, I think he was talking about the fact the upregulation of VEGF that you see in these tumors. But you've seen clinical benefits. Absolutely. 